0: Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come this morning and we want to uh, delight ourselves in you and your goodness. We want to thank you and ask that you would speak to us from your word. Uh, We know that your Holy Spirit has uh, instruction for us here and training and and, uh, reproof and correction even. And so, Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit would be active in our midst, that he would be living uh, amongst us, that we would be reminded that corporately we are uh, the temple of the Holy Spirit pray that you would give me uh, the words to say as we go through this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul's tone in this passage uh, takes a slightly different uh, direction uh, than he has in earlier sections in the book, where he's often a very thorough and logical argument that, that moves along. Have you ever talked to someone in a conversation and they just seem to spit out all sorts of of random things and you feel like they're bouncing from one thing to the next and as soon as one thought is completed and you're absorbing that, they move on to the next one. Paul almost in this passage seems that way. He just kind of gives us a a laundry list of things almost. And, uh, you know, do this, let love be this, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope. I mean, it just kind of sounds like he's almost uh, popcorning it all out for us in just sort of a, a random spattering kind of way. Uh, if we were going to, uh, I'll be honest, I, was gonna, I struggled a little bit this week with how to outline this passage. If we were going to outline it in my normal approach, we probably would have had like 28 points or something. One for each uh, statement that, that Paul makes, maybe not quite that many. But I do think this passage is is centered around the theme of how do Christians behave. And you'll notice kind of two main themes, if you will, that kind of are are center points. And that's one, loving one another. And two, you'll see this constant theme again of humility. And we had some of that uh, last week. Keep in mind that Paul is unpacking to us what it means to live as a Christian. So the transition has already taken place in, ch- in verse one and two. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind and by the testing and, uh, that, and by testing that you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so Paul here is working through this passage. And in working through this passage, he is giving to us what it means to be a believer. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've received the forgiveness of sins. How now do we live? How do we respond and live this out? So this isn't just a bunch of morals. This isn't just a bunch of do this, don't do this, although it does have commands. Rather, what this is for us is how do I respond to the gospel? Having become a believer, being shaped by the Lord Jesus Christ, how do I now live? And so it is this overflow in light of the mercies of God. And so whenever you, you think about commands given to the believer, you and I need to remember they are given in the context of, to those of us that have been redeemed. This is a response to the grace and mercy of God. So I've tried to pack this down into four sort of categories as we move through uh, the passage of Scripture. The first is that Christians show love and honor. So, show genuine love, Paul will say in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Uh, The love that we have and that we show for other believers should be sincere. It should be honest. It shouldn't be fake. It shouldn't be hypocritical. Uh, We're not just putting on a good show. We're not just trying to make people think. Uh, we're good and that we smile and that we love them and and then we go home and underneath our breath we're talking about them and we really don't like them. Rather, our love should be genuine. We're not pretending. He says in verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Love one another with brotherly affection. Uh, The word here is where we would get the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. A very similar word here. This appears a number of times in Scripture. Now, 1 Thessalonians 4.9 Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Hebrews 13.1 Let brotherly love continue. 1 Peter 1.22 Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly with a pure heart. Second Peter 1 7, listing a whole bunch of traits that were to put on. He says, with godliness put on brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Working through a series there. Christians should show brotherly love. Uh, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, it's the same kind of love that you would have for a physical brother or sister. The same kind of compassion, the same kind of camaraderie, the same kind of Family love. Obviously, this love is not a romantic love. It's not a a sexual love by any means. It's just you show care. You take care of someone's needs. You're there for them. You're uh, an anchor in their times of difficulties. Maybe you're a help for them. You're a shoulder to cry on. Uh, You're just a good friend, someone that they can confide in. It is just that nature of brotherly love. And this should be in, in all of our relationships inside the church. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, so even among relationships in the church amongst opposite sexes, men, we should love women as if they were our sisters. And, and women, we should care for men in the church as if they were our brothers. And you wouldn't think of doing something inappropriate towards a brother Or a sister, you would just show care and kindness. You would take an interest in their lives. You would talk to them. You would just be a friend. Even then, Paul says we are to outdo one another in showing honor. So he moves, you know, love one another, brotherly affection. Then he says, outdo one another in showing honor. And see, in the ancient world, they were very much driven by by an honor and shame culture. Uh, You gave due deference to people that were older, people that were wiser, uh, people that were elders in your community, uh, town leaders, for example, people that that had status, and the opposite of honor would be shame, and the worst thing that could happen is for you to to shame someone. You think of like in the Middle Ages when someone was shamed and they might call you out and want to duel you. Uh, That might be a little bit of an extreme example, but, but honor and shame meant something. It manifested itself in respect, in giving people due deference. So Paul doesn't set this up here that that the church should honor honorable people. Like, he doesn't say here just honor people that have a higher status than you. Rather, what he says here is we should outdo one another in showing honor. I think of outdoing someone and showing honor. You ever see one of those scenarios where someone uh, opens the door for someone else and they say after you, and the other person's like no 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 after you, and then the other person's like no no really after you, and they just like freeze and there's this awkward like who's going to be more more polite. Uh, this is kind of I think what it, you think about that outdoing honor like. Like, it's not about, are people showing me honor? Are people giving me the respect and the deference that I deserve, which is how the culture in the time thought? Rather, it's, hey, am I giving people honor? Am I honor? Am I outdoing people in giving honor? So maybe you are in a position that would deserve some honor. Maybe you are a, a community leader or something, or you're just an older, wiser saint in the Lord. And here the idea is, Rather than sitting there and saying, all right, people need to give me honor. How dare these young whippersnappers uh, not uh, respect who I am and the wisdom that I have. Uh, The idea is you go out of your way to show them honor, to show them respect. You try to outdo them rather than sitting back and waiting and saying kind of the, the socially cultural thing that you need to honor me first and then I'll acknowledge you. Particularly in cultures where status is more important, there's a whole hierarchy sometimes of who makes the first move, of who bows first, of who extends the hand to shake first, all of those sorts of of social um, taboos and rules. Here, the idea is hey, it doesn't matter. You take the initiative. Show someone honor. Show someone respect, regardless of their age, regardless of who they are, uh, regardless of whether they're a new believer or an unbeliever, or excuse me, a new believer or an old believer. It's this idea of outdoing one another. Think of it, if you will, in a, as a friendly competition. But the competition is not who gets the most honor. It's who gets the most. Them, who do I give the most honor to? Who am I showing the most respect to? You think of just how you might compliment people. You might express appreciation for what they do in the life of the church. You might just give them respect. You might just lend them a helping hand. You know, you see a young mother uh, coming in and and she's carrying three babies or whatever. And you go and say, hey, can I can I take one for you? Or can I... Can I take your bag or can I hold the door for you? Whereas, you know, in some cultures, maybe, you know, you would be the one where it's like, hey, I'm, I'm the one that you should be opening the door for because I'm older and wiser and, and more mature. It's this idea of inside the church, we're not obsessed with our status and people giving praise to us. We're like, how can we give it back to you? And so we should outdo one another in showing honor. Think of honor as showing respect. And as you do this, don't be fake and don't be stingy in it. Be genuine, as Paul has said with regard to love. Also in verse 9, again, I'm trying to hit all of these things that Paul is saying. He says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. So we are to hate evil, we are to despise what is evil. We are not to be people who tolerate wicked things. We are not to get a pleasure out of it. We're not to allow those things uh, in our lives and in the life of the church. Now, we don't mean this in sort of a self-righteous way where we think we're better than everybody else. But just even as you look at your own heart and you know what goes on in there, does the evil drive you to the cross? Does your sin take you back to Jesus looking for forgiveness and continually going before Him? Do we shrug at evil? Oh, that's just the way the world is. Or do we find it repugnant? Do we find it grotesque? I think just a good example, and it's a hard example to have to to make again, but you think about the shooting on February the 14th. We should hate The evil of that violence. We should just despise what happened. I mean, that is awful. We have sympathy for those who went through it. We should have a a measure of weeping for them or with them. But we should also look at that and say, God doesn't want His creatures made in the image of God, killing other creatures, people, made in the image of God. And not in a self-righteous way. Not in a, I'm better than everyone else. But we still should hate evil. It's part of being more like God. It's part of being more Christ-like in our uh, attributes. God hates evil. And one day, He will judge it. And yet that doesn't stop God from showing mercy and love in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to have that same balance. That same tension of we love and show mercy, and when sinners repent, we delight and we rejoice. And at the same time, we don't turn a blind eye to what's wicked. We call it what it is. It's sin hate evil. Hold fast then also to what is good. Cling to it. Don't abandon it. Be driven by the Lord Jesus Christ to pursue what is good. Pursue what is right. Pursue uh, what is um, honoring to God. Cling to the evil. Or excuse me. Cling to the good. I was thinking ahead of myself. Abhor the evil. Get rid of the evil. Uh, It shouldn't be in that sense named amongst us. I don't pretend that this is easy. I don't pretend that there aren't struggles even in the life of the church as things crop up. And yet, this is the standard that God sets for us. So, again, we're moving through and we're kind of seeing these points that Paul hits on. That was probably about four or five points in and of itself. But let's move into my second uh, main point this morning. Christians serve the Lord with passion but also with patience in hardship. Be patient in hardship. So, do not be lazy in having zeal. Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal. It's interesting to me here that Paul does not say it's zeal for what? what what's this zeal directed at? If you're a grammarian, what's the direct object of the zeal? Do not be slothful in zeal. Okay, so for what? Well, there are a number of different things that are mentioned in Scripture elsewhere. Titus 2.14, that we have been redeemed and he has made us for himself, quote, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 1 Peter 3.13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Speaking of how we should obey the government in the context, but we are to be zealous for what is good. Revelation 3.19 Those whom I love and reprove and discipline be zealous and repent. So here's that fervor of coming back to the Lord, of repenting, of turning. There are a number of things in Scripture that we are to be zealous for. Be zealous for doing what is good. As he said, hold fast to what is good. Most of all, be zealous for God. Be zealous for the Gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ. Talk about who He is. Is this an important element of your life? Or is this something you just set on the side and say, yeah, well, of course, okay, I go to church. Is this something that fuels you? That drives you? Is your purpose in life to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Be zealous. Be fervent in spirit. It kind of goes along here with this zealous uh, aspect. And it, I think it also kind of goes along with the command then, serve the Lord. A good example of someone who is fervent in spirit, and I think also zealous, but is specifically called fervent in spirit, is Apollos. Do you remember Apollos in the book of Acts? He had been going around and ministering, and he had been sharing the way, but he only knew about John's baptism, not Jesus' coming. Uh, Acts chapter 18, verses 24 and 25. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew, or though he knew only, the baptism of John. You think of this language of the way of the Lord. That was often the way the early church talked about it. It comes out of Isaiah of preparing the way of the Lord. That was the ministry of John the Baptist, that the the way uh, was coming, that the path would be open, that we would see God's glory as the sun uh, would come down. But here is this Apollos. And I imagine something like this happened. Apollos heard the ministry of John the Gospel, either directly or indirectly. Either he had been in Judea and he heard John say, hey, we need to repent and prepare for the Messiah. Or, maybe he never had left Egypt, and someone came down from the region of Judea and Galilee, and had told him, hey, there's this guy, John the Baptist, he's preaching that we should repent, that the Messiah is on his way. And Apollos didn't even sit around and wait to see when the Messiah was coming. He heads out, and he's now up in Ephesus, and he's He's preaching about John the Baptist and Jesus the Messiah who is coming. And yet he doesn't even know yet that Jesus has come and that he died and rose again. So Apollos is preaching the gospel and he's showing how the Old Testament is is right on the verge of being fulfilled. And yet no one has come along yet and told him, oh, by the way, it was fulfilled. So it's not that he's not preaching the gospel. It's that he is preaching, but he doesn't understand everything that has happened. He's still waiting for it to happen. And you can imagine how this works in the ancient world in a time where they didn't have the telephone or email or modern means of communication. So here he is down in Egypt and here's Galilee and Judea, and for you the map is going to look backwards, but whatever. Um, And so the message goes out, and uh, Apollos gets it in Egypt, and here then Jesus is living, but Apollos is still here, and he started going out. And he starts going up to Ephesus or maybe other places, and he's doing ministry. And it's, you know, the gospel starts to spread because Jesus has died and rose again. And here's Apollos, and the gospel is spreading, and he's still talking and ministering. And then finally we get to Acts 18, and it's like the gospel has caught up now with where Apollos is. But that's fervor, right? He didn't even sit around and say, okay, well, I'm not going to do anything until I know for sure. When Jesus is coming. He was passionate. And he just laughed and got out there. I think in an analogous way. How many times in our lives do we lack that fervor? We're afraid to say something. Maybe we just use the excuse, and I've done this. You say, you know, I'll just wait until the moment is right. I'll just wait till that perfect in. And the reality is I'm, I'm covering... For my lack of a a desire to be bold, to have that fervor and just kind of maybe push a little bit to get in there and share something, to say something, to turn uh, the conversation. Maybe I don't like people knowing that I go to church or that I'm a Christian. Maybe I try to keep that aspect of my life separate. That isn't fervor. We need to have a fervor for the Lord, a zeal. A fervor in the Spirit and be willing then to serve the Lord. There are lots of ways that we are each called to serve the Lord. We talked about that last week uh, with the various gifts that were given. But the point is this, that each one of us are called to use our gifts and talents and be a servant of the Lord in some way. Why are you in this Christian life? Why are you here uh, today on Sunday? Is it because of the Lord? Is it because you delight in serving the Lord? Because you have a zeal for Him? You have a a passion for Him? Some of you can think back to when you were first Christians. And man, you were just on fire. And people couldn't get you to shut up about Jesus. And now, maybe for some of us, that fire has died down a little bit. We're still Christians. We still believe these things. The coals are still there and they're hot. But it's not that sort of open flame that we had that was bubbling over. We have heat, but maybe we need to be stoked so that there's light and flame again. Ask the Lord where He would have you serve Him. That He's redeemed you and called you to be His child and you have this wonderful gospel that has been at work in you. How would He have you respond? Also, we're told to rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation. Look at verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. So something that I've seen happen in people's lives is is sometimes uh, the people who are the most fervent at one stage of their life, it's also the easiest for them to become the most upset or the most discouraged in the other stage of life. I tend to myself be sort of an even keel kind of person. It's not that I don't get excited, uh, but, I, but I tend to be kind of reserved in my excitement. But then the flip side of that is, is I tend to just be maybe sort of stoic when there's difficulties. It's not to say that I haven't had difficulties. It's not to say that I haven't had times of sadness and discouragement that made me feel really down. But, but I tend to be, you know, if, if, my, if I go up and down, it's, it's this. But sometimes people that, that have this really intense fervor, and maybe that's you, and then something happens. It doesn't work out the way that you planned. You tried to share the gospel. Maybe, maybe you had a family member, and you were really pumped and excited, and you just laid it all out, and, and they just haven't responded. And sometimes maybe you have people that make fun of you or are mocking your Christian faith, and we go from this really high fervor sometimes then this really low discouragement in the tribulation. And Paul's response to us, his command here, is be patient in tribulation. Hang in there. Hang in there. Hold on to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't get discouraged. Don't say to yourself, I don't know why I bother. I'm just going to not do it ever again. I'm just going to give up. Maybe it's a, a situation where you used your, your spiritual gift. You, you took my advice last week and you said, okay, I'm going to try to do something with my spiritual gift. And you volunteered to do something or you said you'd do something and, and nobody was jumping uh, up and down saying, yeah. And you're like, oh, now I'm discouraged because I don't think they really want me to do it. Be patient. Be patient, especially in hardships especially when you're going through some sort of difficulty, especially when it's a trial, you've lost someone. And the temptation is to throw in the towel. The temptation is to say, I don't know why I bother with this faith in God because he's letting this happen to me right now. Be patient. Be constant in your prayers. We get to these points where we think, God just isn't hearing me because he hasn't answered. He hasn't relieved this burden or taken away this stress. Or he's added another hardship of all things. Be constant in your prayers. The scriptures say a day is like, uh, a thousand years is like a day in the Lord. Sometimes for us, one day of struggling seems like a thousand years. Maybe it's a week of struggles. Or a month of struggles. Or years or decades of struggles. I tell you, you will get to all eternity. And you will be in the glory and the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will look back on those decades and say, they were just a drop in the bucket. Be patient in your tribulation rejoice in the hope that's coming. Focus on the good things that God has given you and the Lord Jesus Christ. Be centered on the Gospel. His death and resurrection secures you if you have faith in Jesus. You will not suffer the wrath that is to come. And the Lord doesn't abandon His children. You can read again the the ending of Romans chapter 8. What shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Rejoice in that hope. Don't stop praying in the hardship. Don't fall into the trap of your own thinking of, well, maybe God isn't hearing me. He hears the cries of His children. You can think of Romans 5, 3 and 4. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. Knowing that our suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope so we rejoice in hope, we're patient in tribulation and trials and suffering, and we're constant in our prayers. Again, I don't pretend that this is easy. And maybe some of you are right in the middle of it. But don't lose sight of your precious Savior. Don't lose sight of what He's done for you. Finally, as we continue moving along, we have two more Christians take care of others. So you have in verse 13 that we're to take care of fellow Christians, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And I really feel like, wow, we just got off a of one high or low and now we jump over to this other one it really is he's just spitting kind of these things out, but now it's Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. A good illustration of this is James two fifteen and 16. If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Most of all, inside the church... We should not let needs go unmet. That's why we're doing the, the little benevolence fund that we're doing. We're just collecting a little bit extra and saving it up. And that's going to be outside of the general budget. And, and if the deacons know of a need, if somebody has a water heater that dies or a bill that comes due, and, and it's, a, it's a real need in that moment, we're going to be able to just step up and help doesn't have to be also with your money, but maybe some of you can take care of the needs of saints by by helping out. You shovel somebody's driveway. You paint somebody's wall. Particularly young people, you can help elderly people do those things that they maybe can't do as well anymore. Take care of people's needs. Show hospitality. In the ancient world, hospitality was huge. Travelers would come through towns and cities and 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 they would go into the town center and one of the things you would do is you would invite them into your home. Now, I'm not saying that we should necessarily do that today because our culture is different. Cultural expectations are different. Our world is different. But hospitality is still something the believer practices. Maybe not just with random people off the street and you say, hey, come sleep in my home. But maybe we do do things to help and take care of people. I'll show you one example I think where even though it's the modern world, the ancient world custom of of hospitality still shows itself. Uh, How many of you read the book or saw the movie The Lone Survivor? There was a, a Navy SEAL guy, right? And his unit got killed, and he was the only one left, hence the term lone survivor. And he gets rescued by someone from a pushtan village in Afghanistan. And their code of honor mandated hospitality. And they took him into their village and they helped nurse him back to health a little bit. They sent people out to their village, uh, to one of the nearest bases, to tell the Navy that the Navy SEAL was here. And the Taliban shows up at the the doorstep of the village and they're like, turn this guy over. You've got to throw him to us. You know, this is the right thing to do. Turn him in. And their code, which included hospitality, said, no, our honor. Is at stake here, and this is this is in the middle of a war, right? I'm sure there were probably some people in that village that did not consider Americans the good guys, and yet they had this standard of hospitality. And I say this to us: it's kind of sad when unbelievers can outdo the church in showing hospitality. We need to show hospitality. I'm not saying that that always means that we... And, you know, if you have little kids, you don't want to just invite uh, a stranger into your home. Uh, If you're a lady driving your car down the street, you know, you don't want to pick up a hitchhiker. You know, use some common sense and some wisdom. But there are times where you help a stranger. There are times where you do something for a stranger. But particularly inside the church, we should show hospitality. What does this look like? Well, do you have people over sometimes? Now, I know some of you ladies, and, and because my wife is this way too, the minute you say, hey, we're going to have some people over to the house, you think, oh my gosh, I have laundry everywhere. I haven't vacuumed the floors since yesterday, so they're clearly dirty. And, and, and the kids have just eaten crumbs all over the floor. And right away, you just shoot up, and, and I just put a whole bunch of stress on you. Okay, calm down. <laughs> Breathe. You can have people over to your house and they're going to think it's wonderful that you had them in. And all those pieces of dirt that you notice and your husband doesn't notice, chances are your guests won't notice it either. You can have your child run the vacuum really quick and it might not be to your standard of perfection, but you can still show hospitality. I say that somewhat jokingly. But I do say that in all seriousness. We should be a church where we're not afraid to get together with one another. Where someone new shows up where they're a visitor. Maybe we invite them out to lunch. Maybe we do invite them over to our home. It's their second or third Sunday here and we're already connecting with them. Getting together with them for a cup of coffee. I would say this even. If an illegal immigrant walked in today, what would be our biggest concern? Would we be willing to feed them at our fellowship meal? If their clothes were tattered, would we be willing to get them something, maybe a warm coat? Or would our first response be, we better call ice? I'm not saying that we should break the laws. I'm certainly not advocating that, and neither would Paul, because of Romans 13. But I am saying hospitality and care needs to be that much of a priority. You have this in Hebrews thirteen two, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. First Peter four nine, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Invite someone to your home. Get together with someone. We're doing that with small groups, but don't just wait around and say, well, you know, the small group leader, he has me in his home, so I don't, I don't need to have anybody in my home. Particularly in modern-day America, we consider our homes kind of like a sanctuary. And that's my safety zone from the world. That's where I go to unwind and kind of detox and, and, and chill out. And We kind of leave that as a barrier. And I'm not saying that your home shouldn't be an element of safety, maybe an element of refuge from the rest of the world. But if you can't trust brothers and sisters in Christ into your home, who can you trust? Who can you welcome? We're to bless our enemies. We'll talk about this more next week as we go into verses 17 and following. I want you to notice verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. I heard a pastor one time wisely say this, it is easier to weep with those who are weeping than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice. And Claire Ferguson said something along those lines. And the reason he said that is because how often do you see someone rejoicing and you and I get jealous? God does something good in their life and they're super excited and and we just kind of feel like, "Ah, no one ever did that for me. Why can't good things like that happen to me? Somebody pays off their car or donates a car to them, and you're like, uh, hello. We've got to rejoice when other people are rejoicing without being bitter, without being jealous, without being like, hey, you know, look at me too. I got things you can rejoice over. Let them have their moment and, and get all in behind them and just be thrilled for them. In the same way, weep with those who are weeping. Have sympathy. Have empathy. Don't be afraid to show your emotions with them. Don't play the tough guy or gal and be like, okay, uh, you've had enough time crying. Let's buckle up here. Come alongside them in their grieving process. Finally, Christians exercise humility. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own eyes. The simple question here then is, how do I get along with other believers? And you can kind of see this thread of love and humility weaving its way through this whole passage, even with kind of the randomness of the passage. Paul has said... We're to have sober judgment in verse 3. Not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. He said in verse 5 that we are individually members of one another in this one body of Christ. So we live in harmony. We have to live together with people and get along with them. I'll tell you a little secret. Sometimes the people in the church are the hardest get along with. Now, certainly none of you are like that. You know, I would never. Now, I'm not talking about any of you, honestly. But we have all been there in the life of the church where someone rubs us the wrong way, where someone says something, where we they have an attitude towards us. They give us the cold shoulder. And rather than being loving, rather than trying to get along with them, living in harmony with them, giving them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they're having a bad day. Maybe they're having a bad week. Maybe they're having a bad year or decade. Rather than being patient, we kind of close up and put up our guard. And say, I'm not going to let them get too close to me. Sometimes, just like in your family, it's... The brothers and sisters that are the hardest to get along with. Sometimes in the family of the church, it's those who we're to be the closest to. And we get into life and we're sharing life with them and they just have something in their personality that we don't quite click with them. And that's okay. Not everybody's going to be everybody's best friend. Personalities are different. That's fine. But do we show them Grace. Do we still acknowledge their brother and sister in Christ? And do we live that way? Live in harmony. Maybe there is someone you find annoying. Maybe there's someone you find who's butting in, or they brag a lot, or they like attention, or they're a little rude. Do you love them? Are you kind to them? Maybe there's a person who you think always makes negative remarks. Maybe there's someone who's, who in your mind is, is too young. Maybe there's someone in your mind who's too old and set in their ways. Or someone too confident. Or someone too cocky. Or someone too inexperienced. Someone too timid. Someone too silly. Someone too serious. Someone too strict. Someone too laid back. We could go on and on and on. Live in harmony. Love these people. 1 Corinthians 3, seven. Love bears all things. Do you bear with those people that sometimes, yeah, that maybe they're socially awkward and maybe they say dumb stuff that even sometimes hurts you? Do you believe all things? Do you give them the benefit of the doubt? Do you try to see the positive in it? You hope all things, do you recognize the gospels at work in them and you pray for them in a in a genuine way? Not just in a oh Lord, fix this problem in them that they have, but in a in a caring way. Love endures all things. Finally, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own eyes. Let me say two things to this. One, James gives us a stern warning about social status in the life of the church. And he warns us that we better not have, let somebody that comes into the church dress nice, has gold ring on and clothing, and say, hey, here's, here's the seat of honor. Sit down here in the front. We've saved this one just for you. And then someone comes in in ratty tears, and, and maybe they smell because they haven't had a shower, and we say, you know, you really ought to sit in the back so that people don't get the wrong impression about our church. Uh, you know you can watch online now? Why don't you stay home and just listen on Monday? Don't be haughty. We live in a culture where people across different groups and divides don't associate with others. They're not in my social status. They're beneath me. It's true in the ancient world, but it's true in our world. We are to associate with all types of people. Before the foot of the cross, we are all equal. And if we are all part of the body of Christ and a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we all are part of one another. And then sometimes in the church, being wise in our own eyes and being haughty, sometimes we just begin to think that we are better than someone else. This should not be. This should not be. The story is told of two couples uh, or two people in a marriage that were fighting. And each one thought, husband and wife, they each thought that they were the more mature one. And they each thought that the other one should take the initiative to apologize and, and go first in admitting that they were wrong. And it was sort of that pride that was keeping them from, from doing it because it's like, well, I'm the more mature one. And finally, the advice of the pastor was... Whichever of you thinks you are the most mature, you lead first. You shouldn't think you're better than other people. But even if you do think that, then you should be going out of your way to show deeper love, greater love, humility, living in harmony with those people that are sometimes hard, to harmonize with. Let us have that attitude in the life of the church. Let us have that spirit that we know what Jesus Christ has done for each one of us. And that we know that we are sinners saved by grace. And so, when we look at other brothers and sisters in Christ, we extend grace to them. And we extend love to them because God loved us us even while we were sinners and christ died for us that's the imperative that paul brings because christ has done this now let us go and do this let's close in a word of prayer our gracious god and heavenly father lord we do pray that you would help us as a body to live in harmony to get along with one another, to treat each other with kindness and compassion, with care, with hospitality. That we would love our brothers and sisters in Christ with a brotherly love, as you have called us to. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.